You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 186 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm I'm probably on the upswing is the best way to describe me right now, Valerie. I'm, okay. Uh, well, the holidays are over. <laughs> Actually, what I'm doing is just trying to work my way through the thousand things that have, you know, there's just certain things that just get put off in the holidays mm. because you can't get your head around them. It, it's yes. just too hard. And so now I have all of those things in front of me that need to be dealt with. Um, so that's what I'm doing. This week oh, will just really yeah. seriously be like sorting out stuff. Yes, yes, I understand. Well, mm-hmm. yes, it, I, I notice the frazzlement that goes around when it's school holiday time because it's actually the opposite of what I experience, as you know. I actually oh, love yes. school holidays. Discuss the <laughs> fact that your neighbours go away and it's much more peaceful and the yes. roads are clearer and yes. <laughs> all of the joys. Um, look, it, look, it's been good. Like we've had a great couple of weeks and um, I went to – Better Red Than Dead. I did a writing workshop up there last week, which was really oh. great. It was, you know, sold out, um, yes. which was terrific. And um, the boys came up with me and we went to the Sherlock exhibition, which was really cool. Oh, um, wow. So, you know, we've had a – it's been good. I, like I, 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 don't, I don't dislike the holidays. I enjoy spending time with them. But um, what I find hard is that you, this sort of semblance of having to get on with stuff as well, it's very hard when you've sort of like got the full-time – persons and you know Mm. it's just not it's not easy to be and also because you are home um you there is a sort of semblance there is this kind of perception from other parents that you're okay to you know have all the kids Um, oh you mean have them over and mind them yeah not I mean, to be fair, my, my friends are pretty good, so it doesn't happen often and it's only if it's if they're really stuck. Um, and I don't mind it so much because it does help to keep my kids entertained as well. So, you know, they do – you know, they are old enough. They do entertain themselves, but it's just that thing of they're just they're, – they're, they're there. You know, they're around yes. and they're – and they're faffing. They faff so much and they bicker. Oh, we've had this whole skateboard war going on over the whole oh. holidays, which has just driven oh. me crazy. Mm. <laughs> Skateboards. I mean, seriously, really? But anyway, it's over. Let's just it's focus over. on the now. Okay. Let's focus Fantastic. on the now. Yeah, well, so. we, we want to give a shout out to Blue Bee. And uh, Blue Bee has left us a review on iTunes and has said the best assistance to kickstart your writing habit. And Blue Bee has said... Uh, I found this podcast about three months ago and listened to it on my way to work. I thoroughly enjoy listening to Valerie and Alison chat to each other and it's like having two friends along in the car with me. I love that. Waving. Yeah, I love that. I think that um, that's such a great compliment. Anyway, uh, Bluebeard continues, 
My writing has stalled for about six months, but listening to the podcast stirred the fire and enthusiasm in my belly, and I have recommenced writing my memoir. I look forward to the new podcast each week because I know I will learn something from it, and it's like attending a course. Keep up the great work, ladies, and I look forward to acknowledging you in my published memoir for your awesome inspiration. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's pretty exciting. Yes, I love that. I love that 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 Bluebee thinks that it's like having two friends along in the car with me. I think that's so cool. I know we are just such a road trip, aren't we? Look at us. We're a road trip waiting to happen right here. Oh, you know what? I have a shout out too. I've got a um, a slightly delayed shout out, but I want to give a big shout out to Master O. And now Master Master O O. had a birthday recently, and uh, his uh, his dad Nicholas sent me a photo. And I just have to give you – this is – I just want you to take a deep breath because you know how you've, right. like, become all arty and craftsy and you're doing amazing yeah. things with all of that. I just mm-hmm. want you to, to – I, I need to say this to you straight. So take yes. a deep breath, sit down. All right, I'm sitting down. I've been quilted. Oh, my goodness. I have really? been quilted. Master O's nana, who I've got to oh tell you has got to be pretty awesome lady, made him this amazing quilt like based on kind of map maker themes. It's got old maps on it and it's got all this kind of stuff. And it has on it as well, and this is how I can tell you I have been quilted. Yes. Um, I sent him a little note last uh, earlier this year it was, I think, um, because he had gone and recommended my books to his school teacher librarian yes. and she had got them in and they had done this whole big map maker thing. And so I had written him a little note to say, you know, thank you so much, like what a great, thing to do and how much word of mouth is important to authors and yada, yada, yada. I wrote him a little note. And he, she had made a copy of that and had <gasps> quilted it onto the quilt. So oh, there's my wow. there's my note signed A.L. Tate. And I, honestly, it was the best thing. And so um, I put it up on my social media. It's up on Facebook and stuff. And I, honestly, it just went nuts. People were like, that is the coolest thing ever. And yes, it is. So happy birthday to Master O and to your nana, Thank you very much for one of the coolest moments of my authoring existence because that was all that was terrific. And thanks that, to Nicholas for sharing it with me. That is absolutely I brilliant. Know. I think how that many people can say that they have been quilted? Not many. I, tell you. I think oh. that you know that you have made it when you get your own stalker and when you've been quilted. That is so hilarious. I've been quilted. I feel like I need a t-shirt. Yes. <laughs> I've been quilted on the front of it. I love it. Is Master is is Master O's father Nicholas O? No, he's not. He's Nicholas P. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Look, that's very confusing. But, but I don't really want to out. I don't want to out Master that's O. Okay, so but just, that's okay. Yeah. That's absolutely brilliant. I think. Yeah. I, I I want to be quilted. Well, I'm so sorry, but <laughs> I got quilted first. And yes. speaking of first, I have something else to tell you. See, I got so mired down in the in the drama of the school holidays, I forgot yes. to tell you all my news. But I do okay. have news. So um, the cover for the Book of Secrets, the first book in the Adaban Cipher series, has been revealed, Val. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yes, it's on my blog, and I will put a link in the show notes to that blog post so that you can see it in all of its spectacular glory. This is exciting. I'm very excited. I revealed it in my my most recent newsletter. So this is why being a newsletter subscriber is, you know, kind of cool because not only did I reveal it, but I also gave away a signed copy of the proof uh, the proof copy of the Adaban cipher. So you know what? If you want to be in mm. on my inside info, you got to get onto that newsletter. And where do people sign up to your newsletter, Al? 
Oh, yes, that's a good idea. At my website at alisontate.com forward slash newsletter. So, yeah, sign up and, you know, I've, I've got more stuff coming up. So please be in the gang. It's so exciting. And I don't even know if I meant to say this, so just stop me if I'm not. But okay. I have been – I've had the privilege of reading the first three chapters of the sci-fi and, oh, my goodness, I cannot <laughs> wait to read, read the rest. It's just um, – I loved it and I think I read it uh, kind of in the late hours of the day and I could not wait to email you to say, oh, my God. I, know, I think you emailed me at like two in the morning or something. But I look, I um, I'm starting to get feedback from readers because it's going out. The proof copies have obviously been sent out. They go out to early readers, to booksellers, to reviewers, to bloggers, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And I'm starting to get because it's a really nerve wracking time for an author that particular moment when it kind of goes out to all of those people because they're kind of industry people and they're obviously key readers and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so it's a massive thing um, and I'm starting to get feedback from that and they're loving it, which is like I'm loving just it. such a relief. Yes, I could just see it all so clearly in oh, my head. Exciting. It was just like um, it's just a movie waiting to happen. <sighs> from you know, your voice to God's ear, as they say, <laughs> or maybe to Steven Spielberg's ear. Yeah, that's right. Maybe All right. Straight, anyway, maybe we'll go straight to the source. Yes. Anyway, make where sure were we? you sign up to Alison's newsletter to get the inside goss. But let yes. us move on to the world yes. of writing and publishing this week. We have a couple of links for you. Now, this one I found uh, on the Right Practice, mm-hmm. and which is a very good blog, and it's written by Joe Bunting. And he just has uh, – he's written an interesting post that he thinks that there are two types of writers. Mm-hmm. Which one are you? Now, when I read that, I thought, okay, he's just going to say there's plotters or pantsers, right? As in plotters, people who plot their story out before they start, and pantsers who fly by the seat of their pants and make up the story as they go along, which is kind of like you, right? Mm-hmm. So – but it wasn't about that. In fact, the two types of writers – he has called type one are the conceptual innovators mm-hmm. and type two are the experimental innovators. Now, they kind of overlap a little bit with plotters and pantsers, but it is a different approach. So conceptual innovators, he says, peak early in life and do most of their best writing right out of the gate and like a plotter they make a plan before they start and then they follow it they usually write very quickly and have very specific ideas that they want to communicate and can articulate those ideas very clearly and some examples he's given are um, Margaret Atwood who says she never suffers from writer's block or Ian Fleming who took eight weeks on his first James Bond novel and then shortened it to six weeks for each book thereafter so clearly he just knows what he's going to write and then he writes it right Mm. but then there are the experimental innovators And they don't necessarily have a clear or specific idea when they're starting out and they work slowly with lots and lots of revisions and they take a long time to understand what they want to say and, you know, they know that there's something that they want to say but it takes quite a while for them to write into that and they often peak much later in life. So his examples of that are um, Ernest Hemingway who rewrote the ending to A Farewell to Arms 47 times And um, Mm -hmm. interestingly, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who rewrote The Great Gatsby for the rest of his life long after it was published, he says. 
So interesting. Have you ever heard or, or have you ever thought of different types of writers in these kind of buckets? No. Hmm. I haven't even. <laughs> I just don't even know what to say. I'm heard of it? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I look. It's an interesting thing. I just think most people are probably going to be a combination of those things. Um, I think lots of people who write very quickly are actually not necessarily people who have a plan at all, but who are actually people who are following the story and trying to find out what happens. Because mm. that's how I roll. Like it's. I think, it's kind he, I of think like, he means finish quickly. They finish quickly. You know, finish yeah, but, their manuscript quickly. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. Yes. I suppose you same, do too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> same thing. <laughs> um. I. Yeah. I just find it. Yeah. It's interesting. Like it. I, and I would not necessarily say that those people had a very clear idea of what they were doing before they began. They, they just necessarily, mm, yeah, I, look, I'm sorry, but I, I don't, I'm not. Alison is I, not excited by this article. I am not clearly, excited so. by this article. <laughs> Should we just say that? I am not excited by it. I, I appreciate <laughs> that there are, that people write and work in different ways, but I, I feel like tr- that this writer might be drawing a very long bow. I, I have failed in. to engage Alison in this case. <laughs> But listen to me trying very hard here. Okay, so how about we just move on? To I am doing my the best here. <laughs> the next link is on Literary Hub, and are we just going to dump it and walk away? Yeah, we're going to dump it because all right, it's gone. You know, See like it. But this is by Jason Hewitt, and he's called it "I Walked Across Europe to Understand My Character." So he's talking about the fact that in what he's writing, his character needs to go on this big long walk and therefore this guy, Jason, also made his way from village to village to see how isolated, in some, you know, very isolated hike, to see how his character Owen would feel and what he would experience, what he would come across, what he would see, whether he would have blisters, whether he would get sunburnt, you know, that sort of thing. And... Uh, and it's an interesting thing because there are many um, writers who feel that they need to experience that. If they're writing a story in Paris, they feel they need to go to Paris or New York or wherever. If they are um, undergoing a, a big, long trek like this, they feel they need to experience some kind of trek. If they're writing about um, some kind of physical activity, they feel they need to do the physical activity. But we can't always go to our settings in our books and I'm interested to see whether you think it's important or essential and if or, or, or when you think it might be important and essential versus when it may not. Because obviously we can't go to Mars if our thing is set on Mars, right? So, no. So this is kind of like a, a form of method writing in a way, like immersing yeah. yourself yeah. in it. Um I, I honestly think I think that a lot of writing does live in the details. I think a lot of world building in particular lives in the details. Like people, you know, you think about building a world and you kind of feel like you've got to, it's, it's all that big picture, you know, whatever, but it's actually the details. It's how how things feel, you know, how transactions occur, what money is used. It's It's kind of, it's small stuff. What does it actually feel like to walk up that hill? I don't think you have to necessarily walk up a particular hill to get the feeling of what it would be like to walk up a hill. Um, but I do feel like that there are certain things that need 
you need the detail. Now, whether you actually have to go there to get the detail is very much dependent on budget half the time, more than anything yeah. else in the world. Yeah. Um, but I do, I, I mean, I can see, um, like I'm researching a, a, new, a new thing at the moment and it's kind of like the really interesting stuff is always like it's, and I'm researching something I can't visit. So let's just get that right out there straight away. I'm researching something I can't visit. I'm researching something that probably when it actually comes out won't look anything like what I'm researching. But the details of what I'm researching are what interests me because those are the things that I will use when I create my story. You know, it's it's how people, um, you know, tended to wounds in battle and it's what kind of different roles how how people would talk to each other in different roles that they have in that particular world and how they would address each other. Like it comes down even to how you would say hello to someone who may not be, you know, who is kind of higher up the food chain than you in this particular world. So the, there are certain details. I think if you're going to write about New York, like I don't think it necessarily comes down to you like this street is here and that building is there or whatever, mm. but it's how do people talk to each other in a deli or what do they, mm. how do transactions take place at a hot dog stand or, you know, whatever your detail may be, those things are important. And I feel like your novel, um, your novel, lives more fully if you get those details right those are the details you know i mean because you know there's, there's certain things that you can that you can check on google earth or you can you know get, get someone who lives there to tell you but there are the, the feeling of being in a place is something that you only understand if you've been there by being there yourself like i remember for example years ago i was in new york Mm. And I was walking down Madison Avenue and it was like five o'clock. It was as busy as, like it was so busy. There were people everywhere. Um, and yet I felt in that particular moment probably more alone, like more, and not in a bad way, not in a bad mm. way. It was that notion of, it was before, you know, too much connectivity. So it was that notion that I was there surrounded by all of these people. Nobody in the world except me knew where I was. Mm. And it was that feeling of, and and that is an amazing feeling and you only understand it if you're actually in it and then sort of you know like it's something that you can use in, in a novel down the track whether it be in New York or in in some other large city but it's a it's those feelings that you that you can't get from a book and you can't get from from Google Earth and you can't get from talking to people that those yes. those details are, are what probably lives but again I say it comes down to it comes down to budget for most people. Um, so for most of us, it's going to have to be finding other ways to kind of get enough detail to evoke those feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I kind of think of it in a, mm, it's kind of a practical, well, definitely the budget thing is important because we can't all just zip off to New York if we want to set our book there. Um, but I think that one of the important things to, is to think about your readership and whether or not they're likely to have experienced what it is that you're writing about. So let's mm. say that you're writing about landing on the moon. Pretty much none of your readership, almost none, have ever landed on the moon. So they're not going to be able to say, no, it's not like that. Or whatever, no, that's right? right. That's right. And so you're kind of pretty safe to not have to go to the moon or Antarctica or whatever. But and and if for example it's to go to Kazakhstan, depending on your readership and where your book is going to be released, possibly 
the majority of readers won't have gone to Kazakhstan. So mm. maybe you can get away with looking at Google Earth or, you know, doing research and reading first-person stories and that sort of thing. But if it's, it's, if it's something like, and this is a real thing because I read a book um, by an author and she was describing an AFL game. Now heaps of people have experienced an AFL game or experienced watching an AFL game, right? So the scene in the book was actually watching the AFL game mm. and and the characters kind of talking about what was happening with the players in the game. And it was just so jarring to read because clearly she'd never watched an AFL game. And I actually asked, do you know much about AFL? <laughs> and um, not that even I do, you know what I mean? But it still felt like it was not real, that scene. And, and she had said, she watched one? So no, the answer was no. And I, I, and I said, and, and, <laughs> and she, yeah, she said she asked whoever her AFL specialist friend was about what that goal was called, you know, the goal where it's not, it's not the six points, it's the two points. And um, you can, clearly I don't write about AFL. Um, and so it it was it, and the thing is so many people would have exposure to an AFL game as opposed to going to Kazakhstan or landing on the moon so mm. it's so it's even more important then not just to ask the specialist but to experience it yourself if there are going to be a lot of people who can call you out on it yeah you know what i mean and even yeah. though i'm not an AFL fan in any way shape or form um it's on enough in the background for me to know that that was a jarring scene that didn't feel right. Mm, so Interesting. But it's it, it comes down, like you mentioned, first-person accounts, and I think that, you know, those primary sources of, you know, diaries and, um, you know, uh, first-person accounts of, of going to Antarctica or of landing on the moon or something are things that you can – that you can extrapolate from as an author. Like you're obviously not going to mm. use the exact experience, but again, it comes down to the feeling because people reveal a lot um, through diary entries and things like that about, you know, what they're, wh- how they're feeling about what they're seeing. And that's, that mm. kind of stuff is, is where your characters and your situations and your scenes come to life is, is that kind of stuff. Um, those details, those first-person accounts. Um, so you don't necessarily have to walk 800 miles across Europe to actually do that. Um, mm. But that notion of I, – I do I do feel like, a, a, for example, a friend of mine did the Camino walk, you know, mm. which is the pilgrimage, um, and he has a, a podcast. He, start, he came back and started a podcast called the My Camino Podcast, which you can mm. find, you know, if you give it a little whirl. And um, – it's all first-person accounts of doing that walk and why people did that walk and mm. what it felt like to be on that walk. And um, another friend of mine did it and she recounted every day on Facebook. Uh, you know, she kept a diary on Facebook for all of us to follow. So what she was feeling and, and you know, those you, the, the combination of all of those things would probably allow you as an author, if you listen to those stories, had a look at someone else's account of what it felt like, would probably allow you to get that feeling of what you, of what you were trying to convey, et cetera, um, across. And I think so it's worth looking out for, you know, specific resources like yeah, those kinds of things absolutely. to listen to as well. Yeah. Yes, but um, yes. it's a great podcast, by the way, if anyone's, <laughs> you know, as to why people do things idea. like that. Yeah, yeah, it's a really great cool, idea. Yeah. For the, for His name podcast. is Dan Mullins, and he's um he's a radio journalist from Sydney, and he he did it, and I think he actually intends to do it again. But 
um, he, yeah, so he came back, you know, because, of course, you meet so many people when you do something mm, like that yes, yes. and so many stories. And so that's what he's doing. He's capturing those stories as to why people would undertake, you know, a, a journey Such like a thing. that. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, I just thought it would be prudent also to mention and to be clear that the author that I was speaking about uh, is a published author, but to be clear, I'm not referring to Nicole Hayes, who is a fantastic writer oh, who knows of everything. You're not. Who knows everything <laughs> there is to know about AFL. I was going, book, a Shadow's so Breath, which is brilliant. Yeah, it's yeah, and she has a podcast, The Outer Sanctum, which is about AFL. So it's definitely not Nicole who is incredible and when, and when you said that I was going my first comment was going to be I bet it wasn't Nicole Hayes <laughs> <laughs> you were talking to because <laughs> she knows all the things about AFL yeah anyway I was really surprised because um yeah it was quite jarring this is a published author of two novels um mm. but yeah it just didn't work and it was, it was became very obvious um that she had not ever watched an AFL game okay so there we go. We have, uh, do you need to go to the place that you are writing about? And uh, a couple of different perspectives from both Alison and I. So let us move on to our competition this week. Our competition is, thanks to Entertainment One, we have 10, that's ten good, 10 book wow. and film pack, pass packs to give away for A Monster Calls, based on the novel by Patrick Ness. The film adaptation is released on the 27th of July and fans of director J.A. Bayona, who's done The Impossible and The Orphanage, and fantasy lovers will enjoy the story of a young boy guided by an ancient tree monster who mm-hmm. journeys into a dark and magical world. And it stars people like Liam Neeson, Sigourney Weaver, uh, and Felicity Jones. So 10 lucky winners will receive a copy of the book plus a double pass to see the film. So entries close on the 20, uh, on the 24th of July. And if you want to enter, then go to writerscentercomau slash win. So that's writerscentercomau slash win. Wow. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our Stage 2 Creative Writing Course, Advanced Fiction Writing Techniques, will help you apply proven methods to your own writing, taking your storytelling to a whole new level. With workshopping and practical exercises focusing on scene development, characters, climax and resolution, it's your perfect next step. Learn online over a few hours each week. You'll even get your own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentercomau slash advanced. Are you ready for the word of the week? <laughs> it comes around so soon, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm so lucky. Well, what have you got for me? All right, have you heard of this word? Calibgian. Not yeah, no, no. I've said no, that wrong. You've Cali- said it wrong. Calipigian, Calipigian, Calipigian. C a l l i p y g i a n. Calipigian. No, I have not heard of it. It sounds like something to do with. I, I would think of calligraphy. Do you know what I mean? Like I would think of yeah. writing in some way. Every time I say this word, I think of the Bengal song "Walk Like an Egyptian." 
Right. Are you going to sing us a few bars? <laughs> no, now? it's okay. <laughs> um, believe it or not, this word means a well-rounded bum. Where did you get that from? Like, <laughs> so, seriously. So you would say. And should you not have said bottom so we don't get an explicit, uh, you know, a well run, oh, No, but I thought bum, I, I deliberated for quite some time about what word to use. But what? I figured there are so many bum, you know, novels or bum children's stories, especially like by Eddie Griffiths and stuff like that. So I thought bum would be okay, but it could be a well-rounded bottom, all right. Or a, so, or a well-rounded butt for our US listeners. Yes, a well-rounded butt, well-rounded buttocks. So um, you would say <laughs> oh, Kim Kardashian has made a business out of trading off her Calipigian figure. It's very hard to say. Okay. Well, I, I have to say it's a, it's a, it's interesting. Have you used it? Oh, seriously, no. <laughs> you can't even say it. How would I, I have used even. it? <laughs> Calipigian. Calipigian. But seriously, I feel like, you know, hey, did you see that, um, you know, we had the Norant, hashtag Norant recently yes, in episode. Yes, yes, We were tweeted the actual, that there is a thing. Norant is a thing. It's Latin. Oh, my goodness, yeah. I, I thought know. you would have known. No, I didn't. Oh, I'm sorry, goodness. I've lost the tweet. Otherwise, I would have actually, you know, oh. thank you very much to the person that tweeted that. Yes. Hashtag Norrand. Hmm. All right. Let's move on to our author this week. Now, we have a uh, repeat guest, Natasha Lester, oh. who, um, who, of course, has written so many successful books and we interviewed her when um, her last book came out, A Kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald. And wasn't that a great success last year, Al? Oh, it was, yeah. went off. As they so say. This year's one is Her Mother's Secret. And um, we, this is a great chat because Natasha talks about how she got the idea for Her Mother's Secret and the research that she had to do and also, of course, about the differences in her writing process. So let's have a chat to Natasha. Thanks so much for joining us today, Natasha. Oh, it's my pleasure, Valerie. Thank you so much for having, having me back on the podcast. I'm very happy to be here. It's great to have you back. Now, we're so excited about your new book, Her Mother's Secret. <laughs> so we have to find out more about it and, and also about your journey in getting this particular, you know, baby birthed in a sense. Uh, because the last book we spoke to you about was A Kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald, which was a phenomenal success. Thank you. Now, I'm so happy with how that went. Oh, yeah, extremely went crazy well. Now, let's move on to this book, though. Tell us, for those listeners who haven't read this book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Sure. So, Her Mother's Secret begins on the day before Armistice Day in 1918, and it's about Leonora, or Leo, as everybody calls her, who has been making cosmetics in secret in the back room of her father's chemist shop in a small English village called Sutton Veeney. She's been making the cosmetics in secret because for women to wear cosmetics at the time is seen to be very scandalous and it's really hard to get hold of cosmetics. Department stores don't sell them at this time. So she supplies her cosmetics to the nurses working at the local army hospital camp um, that's been set up because of the war. And she has a dream that one day she might be able to do more with her cosmetics than just kind of sell them in secret to the nurses. But obviously the war has put that dream on hold. Then the war ends, but Spanish flu sweeps through her village and the consequences of that are so devastating 
but Leo decides to leave her life behind and to move to a place unaffected by war and also to a place where she hopes people might be more open to her cosmetics idea than the um, the villages around her have proven to be. So she decides to move to New York. And so the book is essentially about her attempts to be a part of the fledgling cosmetics industry and her attempts to show society that if women want to be able to wear cosmetics, then they should be able to without being judged for that. Now, how in the world did this idea for the book form? Was it the, was it um, uh, about the character first? Was it an obsession with cosmetics? Because it does sound like you have an interest in cosmetics. Where did this come from? Well, the very first spark of the idea came, um, I used to work for L'Oreal Paris in Melbourne. I was the marketing manager for Maybelline. Um, which is a fabulous job because I had more lipsticks than anybody could ever possibly use. Yes. Um, yes. But the very first day on my on the job, um, one of the first things you hear is the story of the origins of the Maybelline brand. And um, the story goes that um, there was a young woman called Mabel who was in her bathroom one night preparing to go out on a date and she wanted to look fabulous for her date. And at that time, the way that women used to darken their lashes was to use something called lamp black, which was essentially the soot from a candle. So it was a fairly hazardous occupation darkening your lashes because it often involved singeing your lashes. Um, But Mabel was persevering because she wanted to impress her date. And her brother Tom walked past and saw what she was doing. And I still can't believe it was a man who thought of this, but it was. And anyway, he said, oh, there must be a better way to do that. And so he ended up mixing up the lamp black with some Vaseline and then they applied that to Mabel's lashes and she was really impressed and really excited about that. Went out on her date and nobody knows how her date went that night (laughs) but what what we do know is that that was the night in 1917 that their very first mascara was invented Um, and Tom then um, branded it as Maybelline which is a combination of Mabel's name Mabel plus the word Vaseline to make Maybelline Um, and he began to sell that by mail order because it was too scandalous a product to be sold anywhere else. And being the kind of person who loves stories, hearing that story on my first day at work, that stuck in my mind. And halfway through writing A Kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald, I, I started to think because of a lot of the research I did for A Kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald was around that time, the early part of the 1920s. And I began to think, wow, I really want to write about that time when cosmetics use was still seen to be very scandalous and it wasn't yet mainstream and the way in which society slowly accepted um, the fact that women would like to kind of colour their faces and that kind of thing and that it was okay for them to do that. Mm. So you did have a background in the makeup industry, in the cosmetics industry. Was that enough for you to, in terms of the research that you needed in the book or did you have to do more? No, I had to do quite a lot because um, these days cosmetics and manufacturing is much more complicated than it used to be. Um, You know, it really was just a few basic ingredients and a lot of women made cosmetics in their kitchens and at home because that was the only way you could get them. You couldn't get them anywhere else. So um, one of the first things I did was to purchase the very first set of books ever published on cosmetic chemistry and read my way through those, reliving my cosmetics um, courses that I did as a youngster. And I actually, in my kitchen, I made up a batch of lipstick in the way that um, it used to be made. It's, it was basically just four ingredients, a wax, an oil, a pigment, and a scent. And so just got some beeswax and some almond oil and some crushed beetroot juice um, and mix that up on stove and then you pour it into pots because lipstick tubes weren't invented until much later. Mm-hmm. They used to just make it out of cosmetic, out of compact pots. 
And um, I made up my very own batch of lipsticks in the way that Leo, my character, would um, in the back room of her father's chemist shop. So so I did a lot of hands-on stuff like that, um, as well as a lot of research into how um, society did perceive women who wore cosmetics at the time, because I guess that was the hardest thing for me to really get my head around, because obviously everybody wears makeup Mm. these days and nobody thinks anything of it. But Mm. at that time, I discovered that, you know, a sales clerk got fired from Macy's for wearing rouge to work in 1915, um, which, you know, you can't even imagine that nowadays. Um, and the Atlantic Monthly published um, this article um, in which they were asking um, a man to comment on the state of the youth of the day. And one of the things he said in that piece was that he believed that old men like him should be able to use uncivilised warfare against women who did things like dance to jazz music and wear mascara and rouge. <laughs> and, you know, it was it's, it's quite unbelievable that a national news magazine would give a man six pages to basically exhort violence against women for simply wearing rouge and mascara. And so it was that kind of research that I really needed to do to see this was the way in which women were treated for doing something as commonplace to us as wearing rouge and mascara. And, you know, back then, things like domestic violence, women dying in childbirth, et cetera, which were huge social issues, weren't given six pages, but yet something like this was. So that was what I really tried to focus on because I wanted to understand how hard Leo, my character, would have had to fight to be able to establish a business like that at that time. So I'm intrigued to know because it sounds like you did a fair bit of research and that you really quite enjoyed it, especially if you're <laughs> yes. making your own lipsticks. Did you yep. did you uh, subsequently wear the lipsticks? <laughs> I did my well because my kids got really excited about it. They love it when I do crazy weird things <laughs> like this. And so I made it the morning before they went to school and then it had to set. So when they got home from school, they all rushed in the door wanting to see what it looked like. And so then they wanted to see what it would look like on me. And so they put it on me and then my girls put it on them just because for a bit of fun. <laughs> So I don't think I'll give up my writing day job anytime soon to become a cosmetics entrepreneur. <laughs> but it was amazing how easy it actually was um, to do it. Yeah. So it's, yes. it was a lot of fun. I love doing things like that. I think you have to get hands on. You have to feel how your character would feel. I've just recently done a fashion illustration workshop because the character in next year's book um, is a, a, a seamstress and she also um, designs clothes. So I had to get a feel for what it is like to sketch a figure and to design and draw clothes onto a figure. So it's just part of me immersing myself in knowing how my character would feel when doing their job, I guess. Yeah, wow. So it does sound like you had quite a bit of fun and it's easy. I can see that it would have been easy to um, get lost and immerse yourself in the research because it is it is pretty fascinating. So how did you – which was the more dominant thing, the research or the character's journey and the plot of the story? Did you – already know what the plot was going to be or how did you you know work figure them all out like at the same time or separately or what 
Um, well, for me, I find, and a lot of people think this is a slightly strange way to go about writing historical fiction, but it's the way that works for me and everybody almost has to find their own way. But mm. I like to write the whole first draft first before I do a lot of research. And that's because I am the ultimate pantser. I have tried <laughs> over, this is my fourth book. I have tried and tried and tried to be a planner and it just does not work for me. That part of my brain, which plans out every other area of my life in minute yeah. detail does not work when it comes to writing. So I really have to work out, like I literally began the story knowing I wanted to write about this character called Leo and that it was about the birth of the cosmetics industry and that was about all I had. So there's obviously a lot more that needed to go onto the page. And so I have to write that first draft to work out what is the story that I'm trying to tell. And then that first draft acts as like a research blueprint for me because then I can see what do I actually need to know to make this story authentic and believable and a better story? And then I will go and research to fill in those gaps rather than running into that trap of doing so much research that it becomes so overwhelming, not knowing what to research. So therefore you don't have a scope almost if you like. Mm. Um, and also I find there's a danger that if I research too early, I then write to what the research tells me is possible rather than what I want to do in that first draft is let my imagination run wild and just write the story that my imagination tells me is the best possible story. And by research first, I become trapped within, you know, the actuality and the research. Um, So I like to do it that way because of those things. Yeah. Now I'm interested to know because you obviously have done a lot of research. You've you you know you bought the original books. You've looked up stuff in the Atlantic Monthly and so on. I know that um, keeping that research under control and easily accessible, so you can refer to it when you need to, is something that some writers struggle with. Or there's piles of paper everywhere, and yep. I know that you're a big fan of the writing app Scrivener. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in fact, you do a course with us called Two Hours to Scrivener Power and I've done your course and it's, <laughs> fant- it's fantastic and I absolutely love Scrivener for any of my long-form things. I don't use it for articles like magazine yeah. articles, but anything over, say, 30,000 words, I definitely use Scrivener. And your tips in that course, I mean, your Scrivener tips generally – are um, just so practical and they make so much sense and they're so neat and tidy. You're just very (laughs) neat and tidy. Tell me, using this book as an example, how you might have used uh, an app like Scrivener to arrange not only your research but obviously just the story overall. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, my secret goal is to convert the world to Scrivener one writer at a time. <laughs> well, it's actually not a secret goal. I tell everybody that um, because it is the most amazing piece of software and has literally changed my writing life when I discovered it. Um, and one of the reasons for that is the fact that you can keep all of your research documentation in the one document along with your manuscript. So um, every photograph that I take on the streets of New York goes into my Scrivener document Um, and Scrivener enables you to do a couple of things with something like a photograph. So when I'm typing my story and um, there's a particular location that I'm writing about, which I have photographs on, I can put a little link in my manuscript to that photograph, which I can then click on that link in my manuscript and the photograph will pop up. So it's right there when I'm writing or I can, you know, create a separate window to have that on the screen the whole time that I'm writing. Um, same with all, anything I find on the internet, uh, a PDF document about an, with an article like the Atlantic Monthly article, etc. 
all goes into my Scrivener research folder so I don't have to leave Scrivener and go to the internet and look up the article, which will then lead me onto things like Facebook and, you know, mm. wormholes of, you know, wasted time. Mm. Um, I just click on the article within Scrivener and it pops up there again in, in another window so I can have both the article and my document open at the same time. And I've only had to access that from Scrivener. So it's a really great and efficient way to organize your research, have it all there, make sure you only stay in the one program for your writing time and you never have to leave that program, but also just on a practical level. So this book spans 20 years from Mm. 1918, well, in fact, 21 years, 1918 to 1939. So it's this massive timeline. Um, I've got two different point of view characters, um, So to organize and order that, the way that Scrivener works, again, is it enables me to color code each section so I can see at a glance this is the 1920s section, this is the 1930s section, this is the section from Alice's point of view, this is the section from Leo's point of view, um, without having to go in and scroll through a long ream of pages in Word. um, Mm. You know, my color-coded binder means I can see at a glance which scene is from which point of view and which time frame, and I can easily jump in and out and and jump around as and when I want to. So it works really well for something like this. Um, You know, and even for next year's book, which is a part contemporary, part historical, again, you know, the color coding is a lifesaver in terms of seeing in front of you visually the entire structure of your book. Um, Mm. I love it. Mm. Now, when you first started using Scrivener, though, because uh, tell me, I'd l- I'm interested to hear about your experience because I do meet people who I also try and convert them to Scrivener, <laughs> and and they say, oh yeah, I've downloaded it, you know, or the free trial or whatever, but it's just too much to learn. Yeah. What's your? Did you initially also feel that way? And what's your response to that? Yeah, I did. I was really worried that I was going to download Scrivener and I was going to spend weeks of time working out how to use it and it would prove to be a waste of time. But I'm so glad that I I did dive into it. I mean, I did work through the Scrivener tutorial, which is a document that you open and work on in Scrivener. And that's a great way to get started. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the key things is you just have to dive in there and use it. But also you have to work out a way to use it that works for your writing process. So it's not just about here are the functions of Scrivener, but it's how can I use those functions to make my writing process more organized and easier and that works for me. And that's, I guess, what I try and teach in the Scrivener course. So not just here are the different functionalities of Scrivener, but how can you make those work for you as a writer to make the writing process more intuitive? And I think that's the hardest part when you just dive in there yourself and try and work it out, it's making it work for you is hard to figure out. Um, So I I just battled on through it and I did figure it out in the end. And that was why I thought, oh my God, somebody has to teach this because it would just save so much time. If I had have had a two hour course back when I was starting out, it would have saved me a couple of weeks of time. But um, I'm glad I did persevere. Um, But that's obviously, yeah, as I said, why I made the course up. Yes, and I think that that was one of the most valuable things because when I went through the course, uh, just seeing your real life manuscript mm. and seeing how you how you used it with your specific characters and your specific piles of research, your specific folders, was really helped me realise how I could use it. And I write totally different things to you. Yes. You write fiction, I write nonfiction, but I could totally see how it would work, you know, for, for my purposes. But anyway, let's move on to you uh, – you had the smash hit of 2016, a kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald, and you've, you've followed it up now with this. How, tell me some timelines. How did you, where did this book fit in to 
in terms of its conception, uh, you're writing your first draft and all of that, when it fit into uh, the the timeline for a kiss for, for Mr. Fitzgerald. Do you know what I mean? Like ha- when were you doing what? <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically um, I, I'm sort of contracted to write a book a year. So I've got a, a year of time to write. But what that means is that you're essentially juggling three books over the course of a year because you're writing one book for um, the following for two years time. In fact, for me, it usually is. Um, so right now I'm writing the 2019 book. I've Mm. submitted the 2018 book and I'm, I'm just about to embark on the structural edit for that book. Um, and then there's also the publicity for the third book, which is her mother's secret. So you've got a publicity book and a book you're editing and then a book that you're writing. Um, and that's how it tends to work for me with one book a year. So you've got to, I like to, chunk my year up into school terms because I've got three young kids who when they're on school holidays I can't kind of write around them um so I really look at my year in terms of school terms like okay this term is for writing this manuscript and getting the first draft of the 2019 manuscript done this last um six weeks or so has been really publicity for her mother's secret and really focusing in on that and then the editing for next year's book is about to come in, so I need to block out a month to work on that. So I have a wall calendar, a 12-month wall calendar up on my wall, and I've got things blocked in for every school term. This is, you know, this project or that project so that I know and I can focus. I don't work well if I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. So if yes. I have that calendar there and I can say, okay, this month is all about publicity. you just got to get out there and talk about her mother's secret and meet readers and do all that fun, fabulous stuff. And don't worry about the writing of the 2019 book. When you stop doing the publicity, that's when you sit down and do that. So then I know that it's all taken care of. It will all get done. The deadlines will all get met. And I'm a much more relaxed person rather than stressing out about (laughs) not getting things done. Yeah. Yeah. So you are contracted uh, for a book a year, which for some writers that is their dream. Uh, absolutely dream but I want you to cast your mind back to when you weren't contracted to Mm -hmm. a book a year Mm -hmm. and you were navigating your way and trying to get published for the first time or get attention for the first Mm -hmm. time what do you think you did to break through or to get (laughs) attention (laughs) Uh, well, a few things. I guess the biggest thing is not giving up and not stopping because you just never know what is around the corner. And the day you decide to give up, you know, maybe the next day something fabulous was just about to happen and you've stopped just too soon. It does take a long time. It took it was five years from the time I started writing my first book until the time it was published in 2010. So, you know, it's a long-term commitment. It's not a year. It's not a few months. It was five years. Um and then just just give us a bit of an idea of why it took five years. <laughs> well, I had three babies over those five years, so that okay. probably slowed me down a little bit. I don't recommend doing that. Yeah. Um, but also just uh, it was my first book. I didn't know how to write a book. I had to learn how to write a book. I assumed yeah. that all writers did plan and they did have chapter-by-chapter chapter outlines. It was very confronting to me to discover that, I didn't work like that and that I had to grope blindly around to find what the story was and that it would only unfold for me page by page. It wouldn't come any any further out than that. Um, so I had to figure out how to write a book to start with. Then I had to, um, you know, face rejection. I, had to, I sent that first book out to 
agents and I got rejected by all of them very nicely and I got some beautiful personal responses, but I got a no from all of them. Mm. Um, I submitted it to things like the Australian Vogel Award because I was young enough then, <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> um, and I got long listed for that, but it didn't make it through to the final round. So, you know, there's all these little near misses, but ultimately rejections. Mm. Um, and so, you know, to, to persevere and to keep going in spite of all that, I think is really important. I think the other thing too, that's really important is, um, for me, it was getting out there on social media and having a platform and getting people to know who I was because when I changed over from writing contemporary sort of literary fiction to writing historical fiction with a kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald, I had to um, change agents and change publishers because it didn't fit with my existing kind of um, the thing I was doing. And I, I was really lucky. Um, my current agent, Jacinta Damase, you know, emailed me out of the blue one day because she'd seen me around on social media and seen what I was doing and had been kind of impressed by that and was engaged by the way I, I wrote. And so she asked me if there was anything that she could look at, you know, it's kind of the writer's dream to have an agent email them. And it was really unexpected, but it was because I'd done the work of, um, you know, building up that platform and, and putting myself out there, which, you know, is, takes time and it's pretty scary. I didn't really know what I was doing to start with other than I had a marketing background. So I like those kinds of things, but mm. you know, um, yeah. So to answer your question, what were the things that made the difference? I think it was a not giving up and B, um, you know, getting out there and trying to, um, get people to know who I was and, and my name and that I was a writer. Um, and so not just online, but also face-to-face -face, going to festivals, going to mm. writers talks, um, you know, anything to do with writing, getting out there and going to it and meeting people. You've done such a great job at, at doing that and you continue to, to do that. Uh, what if you had to pick, say, you can say one, two or three, whatever comes to mind, <laughs> things that you think uh, essential for an author to do if they want to do that to build their platform what would you say and 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 if you can direct that to people who haven't been published yet you know who, sure. who want to be authors yeah yeah I mean the first thing is you have to um you have to understand that as an author, you are a brand. And a lot of the times people don't like to think about themselves like that. And they think that's sort of too commercial or selling out, but, but you are, and that's how publishers market you as a brand, you know, in terms of how they slot, how they choose your covers, how they place you and get you placed in bookstores, how they uh, provide a soundbite to a newspaper or a magazine to in entice them into wanting to write about you. So as much as you can consider yourself as being a brand and, okay, what is your brand all about, that's a good mindset to put yourself into um, and to try to not think about that as being confronting, but actually it's quite fun, um, you know, what kind of person are you and how would you like people to feel about you when they come to your website, you know. And so and as part of that is, is being real and true and, and who you really are. So, um, you know, I would like – people to come to my website and go away feeling like they've, they've learned something. Maybe they've been a little bit inspired. Um, you know, they feel motivated and enthusiastic and love writing. Cause my whole thing is that I love writing and I want, you know, everybody who loves it to keep going with it. Um, mm. so those are kinds of parts of what I like to consider as 
part of my author brand, I guess. And so, you know, the author brand isn't just this horrible, scary thing. It can be all those beautiful, warm things that I've just talked about there um, that fit with who you are and are part of your kind of natural personality, I guess. So, so those are sort of a couple of things, I guess, is, um, yeah, thinking a little bit about it like a brand and not being scared about that being mm. true to who you are and being real and authentic when you are, um, you know, engaging and uh, online and, and that kind of thing. Um, and face-to-face contact is so important. Um, you know, yes, you do a lot of that, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I, mm. I just, it's the, you know, it's so underrated, but getting to a library and, you know, when I, my first book came out, I'd go to a library and there'd be like six people there and I would talk to six people mm. and you might feel a little bit like, oh, only six people, was that a waste of time? But no, those six people, because I took the time back with my first book to do the talk anyway, even though there were only six people there, you know, mm. they have stayed with me through all that time. And, you know, this time when I've gone and done talks, you know, I've been so overwhelmed and surprised because they've largely been sold out and we've been getting big crowds of people but it was because I went and spoke to the six people you know seven years ago and didn't just pull out because it was only six you've got to grow and build those sorts of things um and so on my social media I use video a lot because I like to replicate that face-to-face sort of thing in that environment too um do people just like to see you and talk to you and face-to-face nothing beats that for turning your book from a monologue into a dialogue where you can get in front of the reader and Mm. answer their questions. And I really like that. Mm. Now you, uh, you do a lot of face to face, you understand how to build your author platform. I'm interested to know with it. Let's take this book, uh, the, the, you know, the current book, um, Did you have, uh, obviously you have a a great publisher and they have certain marketing strategies and campaigns (laughs) that they want to do. Did you also have some of your own and can you talk about any of the strategies that you had formulated to, in in terms of marketing this book, promoting this book? Sure. So um, one of the things that I love um, doing in my research is researching the fashion of the time. Um, I'm a bit of a <laughs> – I have a thing for clothes. I will come out and say that. I do have a thing yes. for clothes. <laughs> um, so, you know, going to the Met Museum and spending hours poring over dresses from the 1920s and 1930s is one of the best pieces of research I could possibly do. <laughs> um, and so I always – all the clothes that my characters in my books wear are based on genuine, authentic pieces from the time that I've either seen in a museum or seen in a book or, or something like that. And um, and I describe them in quite a lot of detail because I get quite into that. And so what I did with um, two of the dresses that Leo wears in Her Mother's Secret is I asked a local fashion illustrator to draw up those um, and to illustrate those, illustrate Leo wearing those dresses from the book. I provided her with the with the images of the two dresses. One was a, a 1920s Worth wedding dress and one was mm-hmm. a 1939 Lucien Lalong evening gown. And so she drew Leo up wearing these dresses and I had those made into postcards which I gave out to readers who came to see me at any of my talks. So you can only get them by coming to my talks or I gave a few away on my um, social media and that sort of thing. So just another way to bring the character to life and to Mm. reward readers and people who take the time to come and see you by giving them something special and something limited edition that, um, you know, worked really well. I only had – 
sort of 500 postcards made. So mm. once they'd run out, they'd run out. Um, and that was just a, a really beautiful way to, you know, a lot of the readers do notice the clothes in the book too. And so to, mm. for them to be able to see what I'm describing in the book as well works really well. So that was something that I did um, because it was a, a kind of a love of mine and I wanted to bring the book to life in a certain way and I thought that would be a fun way to do it. So yeah. that works Nicely. Yeah. Great idea. Now, one of the things I love about uh, the way you work is that you are so generous in sharing your experiences and your ups and your downs and sharing, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, advice. And, and as I said, last year, the smash hit of 2016, <laughs> a kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald and, and now we've got her mother's secret and, um, and I've no doubt next year's one will be just as successful. Uh, but this, um, a, a lot of it came about because you did build your author platform and you were subsequently then able to um, get a lot of interest for last year's book and mm-hmm. you had four publishers bidding for it um, yep. and uh, before finally deciding on, on, on the final one. Hachette, yeah. Yeah, Hachette. So and, and you've highlighted that into a course called How to Attract Agents and Publishers, which mm-hmm. – is you know jam-packed with such useful information because if there's one thing about you Natasha even though this is really bizarre is even though you're a pantser you're actually incredibly systematic yes you are and you really organize and think things through and really really um you know, can can convey things really, really clearly. So that's one of the things I love about the way you explain things and share your advice to people. So um, obviously people can go do that course if they want to, but what do you say, what would be the key things, and again, you can pick one or two or three things that people need to do if they want to attract agents and publishers? Um, I think the first thing is... <laughs> It's again, um, and again, sometimes people don't, don't like thinking about this in relation to their book, but is that you have to sell that book to the publisher or the agent. And so you have to uh, distance yourself from the fact that the book has, say, 400 pages and it's about all of these amazing and wonderful things, which of course it is, and have, you have to work out what is the most saleable thing about that book and how can you describe that succinctly and in an exciting way in around 30 words. And mm-hmm. come, to come up with that um, pitch line is so important and it takes a lot of time to do. It's not something it's not that you can just do you know, over at the course of a couple of days. It might take three months of going back and forth and refining these two sentences, you know, dozens of times over the course of that three months. So it's um, remembering that, you know, you only have one chance really with this book. You've got to give it the best shot. So you've got to invest the time in it. Yes, it may have taken five years like it did for me to, to write that first book, but then the whole pitching process is, an, is another chunk of time that you have to invest in and be patient because, you know, publishing doesn't move very quickly. Um, so to take the time to do that and to recognize that you are trying to sell something here, and it, I know sometimes people don't like to think in that way about a creative product, but, 
you know, the publishers have thousands of manuscripts to choose from. So yours has to leap out of the pile. So if you can succinctly and excitingly and engagingly um, summarize your book in such a way that it leaps off the, it leaps out of the email, then that's the kind of thing that will help to set you apart. So mm-hmm. those, that's really important. Um, and you know, that synopsis, <laughs> getting a good mm. synopsis, it's so hard. I'm fucking writing a synopsis, my first synopsis. I thought this is harder than writing a book. Um, <laughs> and again, it's letting go of everything you know about your book and extracting the most important things and the things that are going to attract the publisher's interest and writing it over and over and over again, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. So yeah, so it's those things, investing the time, looking at what about your book is saleable and being able to summarize that in an exciting way, I think makes a big difference. Awesome. Now tell me what has been the most enjoyable part of the writing process for Her Mother's Secret? Um, this is going to sound like a really silly answer, but just the writing. Like literally. Okay. <laughs> I'm one of those people. I know there are some people who say that um, they don't enjoy writing but they enjoy having written. I'm not like that at all. I love the writing. Like to sit, I've just finished the second draft of the 2019 book and and it was just I loved every minute of sitting down writing that book it was just and same with her mother's secret you know it was just I'm living in the world of the 1920s and the 1930s I'm experiencing wearing these gorgeous dresses you know looking at the way makeup was made for the first time and you know writing about gorgeous men my characters fall in love with which isn't very hard very hard to do either um you know so it's just I love all of that it's like spending your whole day inside your imagination and letting it run wild and and why wouldn't that be fun (laughs) all right I'll ask a different question then how what was the most challenging part of the writing process with this book the structural edit without a doubt (laughs) why I'm laughing as I say that because otherwise I might cry. No, not really. <laughs> um, it was challenging because it uh, structural edits always are challenging. You know, when you're yes. writing the book, you're using the part of your brain which is just all imagination and letting that run away and run wild. And the structural edit is all about okay, you have the story and you have all the pieces of the book. It's like a jigsaw. Yeah. But you could just make each piece fit in just that little bit more neatly if you tweaked it the right way. And so yeah. it's very minute work and very detailed work and it takes up all of your available brain space for the entire time. Um, mm. My first lot of structural edit notes from my publisher were 19 single-spaced pages long. <laughs> wow. So um, it was fairly daunting to sit down and think, oh, my God, I've got to tackle all of these things. Um mm. And uh, I guess, you know, for me, it was a lot of self-doubt in that. It was, okay, can I do this? Can I achieve what it is that she wants me to achieve or not? Um, So, Do you really think that? Can I achieve that? Or do you just think, oh, my God, this is going to be time-consuming and a pain? You know, I literally had a crisis of confidence in the structural edit. I wasn't sure that I would be able to do pull it off um, and that I wouldn't meet my publisher's expectations for me and then I would disappoint her. That was what I was wow. really worried about. Yeah, and- oh, absolutely. Um, but by the time I got to the end of it, uh, you have to put those feelings away and you have to sit and do the work anyway. The important thing is to do the work regardless of how you feel and regardless of the crisis of confidence that you're having um, because doing the work always overcomes everything. And I did mm. that and I got to the end of the structural edit and I thought, 
I'm so glad I did that. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, but I've had the best crash course in writing that I could ever have had. (laughs) And I knew that hand on heart, I could say, I am proud of this book and it's the best book I could possibly write at that time. And that's how you want to feel when your book is about to go out on shelf. So tell us about, um, what can you tell us about your next book? (laughs) My next book is called The Semstress from Paris and it's, Set in Paris, the New York. So yes, I had to go to Paris for research. Oh, gee, hard. so hard. <laughs> um, and it's set during the Second World War. So it's about the time when Paris is, um, you know, closed off from the world um, because it's occupied by the Germans. And so um, up until then, the world has relied upon copying Parisian fashions, and there's no fashion industry anywhere else in the world. So it's about that time when other places in the world began to realise they needed to create their own fashion industry because Paris was no longer available to be copied. Um, and it's about you know a woman and her journey once again to to do that. So yeah, it was lots of fun to write and a love story in there as well, of course. <laughs> of course. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us. Uh, Really appreciate it. And, of course, Her Mother's Secret, everyone go out and buy it and read it. Thank you so much, Natasha. Thanks so much for having me, Valerie. It was lovely to chat to you again. So there you go, Natasha Lester. Well, that was a great interview. I always love listening to Natasha talk because she's – She's so articulate and she's so good yes. at like um, at sharing her processes. And I, I think that's one thing about Natasha that um, is probably like if you, if you if you're not aware of Natasha and you haven't visited her website or had a look at her um, social media feeds, etc. She's at natashalester.com.au. She uh, is so incredibly consistent across her author platform, and mm-hmm. I think it it does so well for her because of that. She she blogs consistently. All of her images have a consistent look about them. She is really good at creating it. She always has like a pinnable image on all of her blog posts. Mm. She is excellent at, you know, she does a lot of book clubs and she goes to, um, she does, she had quite a few events around the launch of her mother's secret. Um, she was extremely good at just uh, a letting people know that they were on, but B also leveraging those events, you know, out into the wider world through social media. She is a very, very good role model from that perspective. And I, I think um, if you are looking at building an author platform um, and you're looking for sort of, no, because I, I think it's really important to have a look at what other authors are doing and what yes. you might take from what they're doing. Yeah. Um, she is somebody that I always recommend that people have a look at because, you know, as I said, consistency is is so important when it comes to author platform and she has that in spades. Like she's just all over it. And I think it's, um, you know, there's a lot to be learned from how how she goes about things. And I know she works, she has a marketing background, you know, so she, um, she works at it as part of the job, as you and I have Mm. discussed endlessly in the past, Mm. how important these days it is to, to incorporate that aspect of your, author life into your overall life. It's really, really important to include, you know, writing is obviously your key job as an author, but that promotion stuff, that platform building stuff is, I'm so sorry, part of the job. And she does yeah. that brilliantly. She's very, very good at seamlessly merging all of the things. 
Yeah, she is a great example of somebody who's building their author platform very, very well in an integrated way. And of course, if you want to know how to build your own author platform, you really have to get started even before your book is published. So even if you're still only in the early stages of writing your book, start thinking about building your author platform because you will thank us for this advice when your book does come out and you You will be streets ahead. So to find out more, go to Alison's course. It's fantastic. It's called How to Build Your Author the platform and you can find out more at writercenter.com.au slash platform. All right, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Al, what are you doing this coming week? Uh, well, as I said, I'm catching up on bits and pieces that need to be done um, in the kind of aftermath of the school holidays. And I'm preparing for, I've got a couple of um, events on in August, so I'm getting ready for those. Um, one of those is Writers Unleashed at uh, Gaimia on the 19th of August, and I'm doing a Make Time to Write workshop at that one. But mm. I'm also attending the um, CBCA Illawarra branches literary luncheon for oh, nice. um, kids, yeah, which will be awesome. I'm really looking forward to that. So that's um, in the beginning of August. Um, so, yeah, so I'm just I'm just doing the stuff, researching, yeah. and I'm also – I'm still researching. I've got to get to the writing point of my book soon. <laughs> <laughs> At some point. I better get into that. What about you, Val? What are you doing? Well, I'm very excited because our short story course called Short Story Essentials launches at the end of July. And if you want to get a very, very awesome special pre-launch price on it, then make sure you check it out. Um, Go to writerscentre.com.au slash short story and you will find everything you need to know about the course. But the thing that I love about it is that it's on demand, which means you can do it anytime or it's it's self-paced which means you can take two months or you can take six months or you can take nine months to do the course and it guides you exactly on how to write the short story. So after each module, it will be write the first 250 words and then it will be write the next whatever. So by the end, you definitely have a short story which you will get feedback on from a specialist in short stories. So that's pretty exciting because Mm. it's just – it's the short story form to me is really, really interesting because it's completely different to writing a novel. It's not just a really short novel. (laughs) It's got completely different expectations from readers, completely different experience, um, completely different conventions, and uh, you just got to understand the guidelines for short stories if you want to write a good one. And I think that the exciting part is that – Unlike, say, even just five years ago, where short stories were nowhere near as popular as they are today, they are experiencing a renaissance. They are really popular. There are so many, I reckon there's 20 times more competitions, short story competitions, probably even more than there were five years ago, because it seems to be the zeitgeist at the moment. So yeah, Mm, go short stories. Go short stories. All right. Uh, Where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. What about you, Val? You will find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to connect with me on Facebook as well. Uh, and, of course, you'll find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. So until next time, we look forward to chatting to you again then. Okay, bye. 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 